Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audio books. Right now, today, go to audibletrial.com slash other people and you can get a free audio book download and a 30-day free trial. audibletrial.com slash other people. That's audibletrial.com slash O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. You have to spell other people in the traditional manner. You go there, you get a free audiobook download, over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Audible. These are audiobooks. You can listen to them, go and get some. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person and just one person. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the podcast. This is the program. Welcome to the program. Thanks for listening. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're having a nice summer. Uh, I myself am just uh, days away from a family vacation, which I guess I'm looking forward to. I am looking forward to it. And when I say uh, family vacation, I mean my entire family, my parents, my sisters, my nieces, my nephew. We're all going on a trip together to uh, Colorado in one big group for a week. So I don't know about you, but uh, my family historically does not tend to travel that well together. And, you know, like we're a good family. We get along, generally speaking. But in a vacation setting, you know, there tends to be uh, a different agenda for everyone, especially as we get older. Some people like the beach. Other people don't like the beach. Some people want it hot. Some people want cold. Some people want uh, luxury. Some people are fine with uh, lower-tier accommodations. So this is kind of an experiment. My family, so, you know, we're all spread out. We live in different places geographically and, uh, you know, it's hard for us to all get together. And we've decided in light of this fact that we should all try to convene once a year officially and make it an annual thing. So this is the first time we're doing it. 
it's not the first time we've ever done a trip together, but this is the first time in this new mode where we're going to try to make it an annual thing. We haven't been on a trip together in uh, five or six years. And for whatever reason, I was entrusted with planning this trip. I planned the entire thing. I did all the logistics. I think, you know, I think there's going to be some kind of rotation. It's not entirely clear. Like maybe this year I plan it and then next year one of my sisters does it. But for whatever reason, this year the responsibility fell on me and uh, I picked uh, Colorado, which probably isn't surprising to those of you who have listened to this show. You know I like Colorado. I used to live there. I'm familiar with its ways. And the truth is that I'm a good person to plan a trip. I have a gift for that. I don't know what it is. I'm good at planning. I like that I was able to plan it because then I know it's going to be okay. I think I have control issues. It's like if we go on a road trip together, you and I, big group of people, let's say we're all on a road trip together, I'll be the one who wants to drive. I don't care. I'll drive 20 hours. As long as I'm driving, I know we're going to get there safely. That's how I feel. If I'm planning the trip, I know it's going to be okay. I feel like I have a good uh, sensitivity to what everybody's needs are. I feel like I can try to manage the various uh, interests of my various family members and create an experience that will be enjoyed by all. But we'll see. I happen to think that Colorado in the summertime, the mountains, an alpine environment in the summertime is a vastly underrated experience. Like you think of mountains, you think of winter, you think of skiing, you think of snowboarding, you think of the holidays and so on. And while uh, all of those things are, are fine and good, I've always liked the mountains in the summer. I recommend it if you haven't done it before. It's beautiful. Wildflower season. It's warm during the day, but it's not too warm. And, you know, this is the thing about uh, summer vacations, vacationing in the summertime, convening uh, your family or a large group in the summer. You run the risk of a heat wave in the world we live in now. Could be triple digits. It could be humid. There could be uh, swarms of mosquitoes, Zika virus, yellow fever, malaria. But uh, not at altitude. At least not yet. When you're at altitude... You know, it's a low humidity environment and my family, despite the fact that my parents are from uh, the deep South in Louisiana, my family does not do heat very well. My older sister doesn't love the heat. I'm not a a huge fan of heat though. I record this show in a sweltering garage. You guys know this about me. I want, uh, I'm a baby when it comes to climate. I want room temperature. I want 75 and sunny, very light breeze. And I want it to be cool at night. That's my weather. I feel like uh, an alpine environment in the summer comes closest to accommodating those needs. That's my logic. It's about climate control and it's about, you know, having stuff to do. That's what I'm worried about because, you know, I'm pretty sporty. I like to get out and and do stuff in nature. I like to go hiking. I think I'm going to try to get my family to go whitewater rafting. (laughs) 
I mean, you're in Colorado. What are you going to do? You got to get it on a raft. Test yourself in some uh, class three rapids. See what happens. Could easily be a disaster, but you got to try. We'll go, you know, we'll go up into the hills. We'll do some hikes. We'll ride on a, on a gondola. We'll do a cookout. People can go for bike rides. My dad can play golf. Figure it out. It's kind of a litmus test. Like if we can't have fun on this trip, then we might just be hopeless. It's a big test. I'm looking forward to it. With caution. And humility. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So as I tell you about uh, my family and this uh, trip of ours, this impending trip, it strikes me that the topic is uh, apropos, or at least mildly apropos, considering today's guest. Uh, Frances Stroh has written a book about family, about her family. She is one of the Detroit Strohs, if I may... uh, put it that way. Her family was for generations, uh, the, the namesake and the force behind the Stroh's Brewing Company, which many of you are probably familiar with. At one time, Stroh's was the largest private beer maker in the entire United States of America. It's a massively valuable company. And then, uh, it came apart. In the 1980s and nineties, uh, the company unraveled its value plummeted. Uh, Francis Stroh's family unraveled. And she has written a bracing memoir that deals with all of it. It's called Beer Money, and it is available now from Harper. Uh, she came over here. She sat down. Uh, I think she was the first, like recently guests have been coming over, and 
I have a fluorescent light in the garage, and then I also have a desk lamp, which emits a sort of orange hue, an orange uh, light, if that makes any sense. And Francis had the good sense to turn off the fluorescent light and just go with the uh, desk lamp. Creates a warmer, more dimly lit studio environment. And uh, ever since she did that, I've been offering it as an option to my guests and almost all of them. I think, actually, I think every single one of them has taken it. So uh, I have to give her credit for that. I should have thought of that sooner. Had a really nice time talking with her. It's a fascinating conversation. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Frances Stroh, and her memoir, One More Time, is called Beer Money. I'm really telling the story of what transpired during the last 30 years in my family while we held the Stroh Brewing Company, a company that was in the family for five generations, beginning back in 1850 when my great-great-grandfather Bernard Stroh came over from Germany with a family recipe, settled in Detroit because the water tasted so good in Detroit and made the beer taste delicious, and he started brewing beer in his basement and selling it door-to-door out of a wheelbarrow. And so all great empires began. Exactly. So he made a go of it in Detroit. It was very successful. His sons took over. And Julius, one of his sons, my great great my great grandfather, took the company through prohibition by selling malt syrup for home brewing purposes and ice cream. And Stroh's ice cream is still around. It's also under new ownership now. So the company really went gangbusters when prohibition was repealed. And then my grandfather, Gary Stroh, ran the company. Um, during the 50s, and then his brother John Stroh took over after Gary died. By the 80s, we were the third largest brewer in the U.S., competing with Anheuser-Busch and Miller. Uh, we were on the Forbes 400 list for many years, and um, and what happened was this family-owned company that had taken on so much debt to purchase Schlitz and Schaefer essentially um, just couldn't couldn't compete. We didn't have the advertising dollars that Miller and Bud had. Um, They were publicly traded companies. We were privately owned. We got in over our heads. Um, There were troubled waters in the American brewing industry in the 80s and 90s, and we, we just didn't survive, unfortunately. We lost a tremendous amount of market share. Um, where we turned down a billion dollar offer in the eighties. I was I was going to say there was like a billion dollar offer for the company in the eighties that your family could have taken. We could have taken it. It was a real offer. The guy who offered it, Alan Bond, went on to buy Heileman for one point three billion when we turned him down. And by the way, one point or a billion dollars in the eighties is like what ten billion dollars um, now? Yeah, ten to twelve billion now. Oh my god! Um, so it. And this is where this number that's now being batted around, you know, the Stroh family lost $9 billion. That came from Forbes, who um, who essentially extrapolated from what we were worth in the 80s to so, what we would be worth today if we had succeeded. So with- you, you grew up in, in Gross Point, which is one of the wealthiest communities. It's kind of like, a, I don't know, there's like a... a, a a mythical quality to it. Maybe it's gross point blank. Maybe it's just that I've grown up hearing about it so much, but it was like the, the fanciest suburb where all of the automotive industry executives lived. 
in Detroit in its heyday. Correct? That's exactly right. And I actually grew up on the same street with a lot of the automotive industry executives' children and attended school with them, swam at the same club and went to day camp with them. And, uh, and so it, there was this feeling of sort of tremendous privilege and in the, in the way that we lived. And yet within my own family, there were extremely mixed messages around money. My father spent recklessly. He was, I sort of had this amazing sense of abundance when I'd go on these shopping trips with him as a child in New York and London. You can have anything. Well, it was really about him having anything. (laughs) So (laughs) he would, you know, he'd go on these antiquing trips where he'd buy guns from the Wild West that satisfied this childhood fantasy of wanting to dress up as a cowboy and walk around the house, which his his mother would forbid him to do. He would buy vintage Martin guitars and Gibson guitars and fill the house with with all of these beautiful objects that my brothers and I were forbidden to touch. And on the other side, there was this sort of feeling of contraction with my mother who saw the writing on the wall, understood that the day would come when the money would be gone, warned us about it constantly, and lived very frugally, drove to Florida and Martha's Vineyard instead of flying. Sometimes we'd stay on a community center floor in the back of the car instead of a hotel. Really? And so... That's a strange overcorrection. Like, or, I mean, it's but, true. But at it the same seems time, extreme. But at the same time, she, uh, like you said, she saw the writing on the wall. She could see what was happening, but was powerless to, to correct it. Like she couldn't get your dad to stop. Couldn't get him to curb his spending habits. Certainly could do nothing about the decisions that the Stroh Company's board were making. And so there was just, there was, all she could do was kind of play out these anxieties in her own tiny sphere. And so we wore hand-me-downs. We, you know, couldn't sign for hamburgers at the club. And, and so the mixed messages around money, I think in many ways are mirrored also by the mixed messages, for example, in in the photography that my father was making. He shot these beautiful images Which these are in the idealized book. that punctu- that um act as chapter openers in the book and really sort of reflect this idealized perfect American family in these images. And so I use them to create attention and amplify some of the themes in the book, which really center around like this truth telling this um, really this, this attempt to get at the truth and in the very candid story that I tell, but with these images that really aren't telling the truth at all, that are it's representing like the family it's like Instagram or Facebook. as they wanted to be seen. Exactly. You know, everybody curating their existence. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, it's, it's great to have you here and it's great to be talking to somebody who's written a book that deals so explicitly with money and also that tells a story of such extreme privilege. Um, because I talk about money on this show a lot with writers, most of whom are struggling with it because we're writers. Of course. It's not an easy profession when it comes to money. And, it, you know, we've also been living through times in which um, a lot of people have been struggling. It's been very difficult economically. And uh, I'm curious to know, because I'm a person who didn't really come into class consciousness until I was in college. Mm-hmm. I was sort of in a strange way insulated from it, maybe because we were comfortable, like not super well off, but like never, never really wanted for anything. And that was kind of what I was surrounded with in one of those Midwestern suburbs. 
Which is sort of the sweet spot. I, I believe that's the perfect environment to be raised in where, you know, those mixed messages and that tension and that sort of aspiring to be more just doesn't play a part in the development of your consciousness. No, not at all. And so like for you growing up, um, in gross point, you know, you're, you're at the club, you're with these children of the auto executives in uh, Detroit and whatnot. At what age did you have a sense of your own privilege? At what age did money become, uh, something to you? That's a good question. I think when I was probably five or six years old, my father started doing the kidnapping drills with me. Oh, yeah, this is incredible. You describe this. I will. So my father would take me out in front of our house and make me stand on the sidewalk while he walked around to get the car and drive it around the block. And so the whole idea behind this was that we're going to do this bizarre theater so that I would learn how not to get kidnapped. And really the message was, we don't have the money to pay the ransom, so you can't get kidnapped. And so <laughs> Great I'd message stand to give there. to a kid. <laughs> I'd stand there, you know, my heart beating wildly in my chest alone for two or three minutes on the sidewalk waiting for my father to come around the block in his silver sedan And what would be going through my head was, you know, not only am I terrified and, you know, anybody could grab me off the sidewalk while I'm standing here waiting for my father, but then something even worse would happen and his silver sedan would magically turn into the car of someone else as it came towards me. And it became the car of my abductor and a man with a psychotic look on his face who happened to be my father would pull up next to me on the sidewalk dangle a chocolate bar out the window and say (laughs) come here little girl and I had to run back into the house which I'd been instructed to do but I could take no comfort even in the familiar because my whole world had been turned upside down by this yeah well I remember growing up because I think we're uh, somewhat similar generationally and I grew up in a similar part of the country but I remember as a kid you know don't go with strangers Mm-hmm. Don't take candy from strangers. Of course. Yes, all of those messages. Oh. But that's, and I think that's an acceptable level of education. Okay. But to take it a step further, there, I, I think my father really was trying to protect me, but he just went too far. Were there threats? Were there you... weren't. No. As so far as no, I know, we no... didn't have any real threats. Okay. But he was just, but was he paranoid? I think there was a level of paranoia because, and this is where the consciousness of our privilege came in, we had this name that made us stand out. And so we were a target family for these kinds of kidnappings, just like the Lindbergh child had been. Sure. And that, I remember, you know, the mythology of that that kidnapping sort of really um, something that was talked about very often in my household. And... So this was something to be feared, and we had to take all kinds of measures to make sure it didn't happen to us. Well, the, you know, it's like my daughter's preschool, which is a nice preschool, but it's a free, it's a preschool. There are uh, a, a few children of the famous, and they lobbied uh, successfully for security because of these fears. And then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at elementary schools in Los Angeles, because of the entertainment industry, you've got security because they're dropping off so-and-so's child who could... I guess be worth millions to somebody who wanted to take a child for ransom. That's exactly. a that's a crazy way to have to live and you know it it's it's interesting because so much of my uh mental energy and so much of I think the media coverage of 
inequality deals with the have-nots and like all of the uh, negative consequences of that experience, which mm-hmm. I, I think is, you know, that's, that's so cor- pervasive. That's yeah, it's pervasive. It's a correct way to to view it. I think you start there, but. What doesn't get talked about is the toxicity of being a have, especially if you're in a place of extreme privilege. That can be isolating. That can be paranoia-inducing. That can make a person feel strange. Like, you lived through that. Like, can you speak to that? Did it did it make you feel bad to be in a position of, of great privilege? Did you have a sense of, like, I have too much? Of or- course. Every time we would drive down into Detroit and my father would instruct us to lock our doors often driving down to visit the brewery. Um, I don't think there's any more extreme tableau of of really the contrast between a privileged white neighborhood and a very profoundly impoverished African-American neighborhood than that line, Alter Road, that everyone in Gross Point has to cross to get into Detroit. And we crossed that line quite often because our businesses were in Detroit. And so there was always this feeling of, you know, there's something wrong here. I mean, we, Det- have so much, is- we have so much more than these people and no one appears to be helping them. They're just letting the city fall apart. It's becoming totally unraveled. And it was this slow motion catastrophe throughout my entire childhood and coming of age. And only recently has Detroit suddenly reinvented itself in this astounding way. Yeah. So, well, I was going to say... Detroit's it, an amazing story. It's an amazing story, but it's also when you, you speak about, um, you know, wage stagnation, when you speak about inequality and the stratification of wealth, like, that's like ground zero. Uh, exactly. No city embodies the rot at the heart of American economics like Detroit. It doesn't, and yet it's surrounded by some of the most privileged areas in the country. Right. Gross Point, Bloomfield Hills. Right. And so the contrast is staggering. And that is the environment that a child being raised in, you know, begins to question what is it that's wrong with this country? Like what what's you know, there's something very wrong with the picture here. And the fact that I used to stay in Detroit with our housekeeper when my parents would go off on their vacations and um and, you know, Ollie would take me to her church. I'd eat her southern cooking. I'd play with her, her grandchildren. We'd climb trees together, race around the neighborhood together. And this is a neighborhood that was um, very close to where the riots broke out in the 60s. And I was spending time there in the early 70s. So, I mean, once in a while, there would be gunshots and, you know, nobody really paid attention. And so I felt as if Detroit was really, in many ways, a place that I felt very at home and comfortable from a very young age, whereas not every kid who grew up in Gross Point had this experience. I, I think most families never would have allowed their children to stay down in Detroit, much less go there. So I, I had a unique point of view on the contrasts. And, uh, you know, you're how many siblings do you have? You have three? Three. Okay. And... Um, everyone, you know, every kid processes this stuff differently. Uh, you know, how did it go for them? I, you know, it's hard for me to speak to that. I will say, you know, I have one brother who's no longer alive. Um, Charlie, he had a pretty precipitous decline into drug addiction and died from a drug related accident that I go into some detail about in the book. Um, and his trajectory affected me profoundly. 
Where are you in the in the pecking order? I'm number three. Number three. So okay. right after Charlie, we were the middle kids. Okay. Um, we were very close. When my father was in a bad mood, he would take me into his room and you know protect me and sort of distract me with stringing beads or looking at books and. He was always sort of, he always had my back. He was sort of always there to look out for me, which made it very, very difficult when he really, you know, I was the one that he stayed in touch with the most when the family kind of pushed him away, when the family could no longer tolerate his behavior. And I'm not sure to what degree he was affected by, um, by you know, the areas that, the situation that we found ourselves in in terms of, you know, Gross Point next to Detroit, but I think the privilege and the drug of privilege, cocaine, had a huge impact on his life because he sought the approval of friends um, and he did that through becoming a drug dealer and that became, you know, this sort of huge event that took place within the family when he was caught for that and incarcerated by the federal government. Um, How much he was dealing a lot? He was, he was selling, he had sold, driven over state lines, sold to undercover agents at parties. They had bugged our phone line for eight months. And once they gathered all their evidence, my parents had already pulled him out of college and put him into the Marines. They'd caught wind of the fact that he was dealing having no idea that the Fed had also caught wind of it. So when they caught up to him, he was already in the Marines. It was his boot camp graduation day, and they took him away in handcuffs, and he couldn't even go through the ceremony. Very shocking for my parents, who'd flown out to San Diego for the ceremony. And ultimately, he was able to... um, He got a glowing letter from his officer in the Marines about his changed life, and he'd stayed clean while in the Marines, so he didn't end up in prison. He got off with a huge fine and probation. But it was, I think, the privileged society that he didn't necessarily feel at one with um, that I think led him down the path of, you know, trying to feel like he fit in with these kids. And I describe a moment at boarding school when I'm reflecting on the kids who got busted at show for bringing a bunch of cocaine up from Colombia, and the fact that these privileged kids learn where the boundaries are, but they always find one kid to step over the boundary for them. And that's exactly what happened with the son of the truck driver who participated in that, um, in that drug smuggling case. So I, I sort of compared Charlie to that kid, and um, I think that there's always the one kid that the others sort of target as the one who's going to do it and uh, cross the line. Well, and it's also, it's like, you know, when it comes to drugs, it's, there's always an element of pain relief. You know, it's like wanting social acceptance. It's wanting to be liked, you know, and, and at that age, it's like you want to be the life of the party or at least part of the life of the party. Like, I understand. That's right. That, and if you're the dealer, you are the life of the yeah, party. You so, show up with the coke. There's a huge boost of confidence for him for yeah. a short time. But then, you know, that goes bad. Cocaine's a terrible drug. It really is. You know, like I always, I always say like, you know, whenever it was around, it was always like people like going into rooms alone. Like, you know, it would always be done in secret. And my theory was like, if you can't do it in the open, 
it's probably not good. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to be like huddled in a bathroom with like two other people and the door locked. Like, what are you doing? I know, which is part of the thrill of the whole thing. Like you had to hide and do it. But I had a couple of friends who would just do it. At, like they, you know, they'd be at parties. They just break it out in the open. I always liked that. I was like, okay, that's the way it should be done if you're going to do it. Like but just, then they had to share it with everybody else. Exactly. <laughs> share your Which cocaine. is how it should be done. That's the message. <laughs> share your cocaine, kids. Uh, so uh, I, I think another touching element to your family story is the fact that your, uh, as you talked about, your dad taking all of these photos, even if they were um, sort of at odds with reality, they were an idealized version. You know, and there's something aspirational and hopeful in them. And there's also something beautiful about them. And he's a frustrated artist. He was. It's a tragic story with my father because he was such a talent, even in high school, as a photographer. And he was accepted to the Rhode Island School of Design, where he'd applied with no support from his family. And his mother, who was embarrassed about her father having been an artist in Philadelphia, um just she'd never felt she'd fit into Philadelphia society in the way she'd wanted to because her father had been an artist. And in those days, it was sort of frowned upon and um, by, you know, the upper crust, which is so tragic for those who are born with that artist gene, as my father was. And so his mother said, you've got to find another college because I'll be embarrassed if you go to this one. So he ended up at Michigan State, where he wasn't very happy, and then dropped out, went into the Army for a stint, and then ended up working for the family business, where he never felt at home, never felt really part of the culture, very connected, never made it onto the board. But because he was the artist, worked in the marketing department, and actually had a huge influence on some of our most memorable ad campaigns. Well, it's you know it's interesting about legacy wealth because it, it you know it comes with a lot of privilege and a lot and like you know you can have a much easier life than the average person. Uh, but at the same time, and I, I've seen this happen with a few friends of mine, there are expectations that come with it. You're, yes. you're sort yes. of, you're sort of handcuffed to it, and you're expected to toe the line and do certain things and behave certain ways politically. Mm-hmm. And your identity is sort of formed for you, and that's the price you pay. It is the price. It's the price of privilege. Yeah. Uh, and having sort of been born into this legacy, and I think it's especially tough, certainly in my family, it was especially tough for the men because it was such a patriarchal structure within the business. The women didn't have that same sense of responsibility to toe the line. So I think it made it easier for me to carve out my own identity as an artist and sort of carry on this, I think, lost dream of my father's I in a way. I was going to say. There was this Bert, almost Bert, it was, I just sort of stumbled into photography um, after I was kicked out of Taft for having too much fun and went back to the public high school back in Gross Point. You, you and your siblings got kicked out of a lot of schools. We did. We all... <laughs> ended up getting kicked out for a variety of different reasons. But um, certainly for me, it was just really having too much fun. And, and, you know, we were all doing the same thing. And I was sort of the example that they used to set um, for the rest of the class. So I went back to Michigan. I started taking photography classes with an amazing teacher who is legendary to this day, Jack Summers at Gross Point South High School, still a very close friend of mine. 
and he took me under his wing, was an amazing support for me at the same time that my father was thrilled that I'd taken up photography and sort of showered me with photography equipment and praise for my for my photographs because it was sort of like the burden was off of him now to make a success of it. I was going to do that. And so I really felt that burden sort of transfer over to me. Um, but it felt it felt like sort of a mission for me at the time. And then when my work started to evolve on and became an installation artist later on in my 20s, my father really never let go of that idea that I was a photographer and always encouraged me to, you know, put down the video camera and, you know, go pick up the still camera again. When, when did you know that he was a frustrated artist? Because that seems like something you would learn later about a parent and like in like a deep way, you know, like, oh, wow, like this this is really who he was and he never got a chance to be that because I think when you learn something like that about a parent, um, it would probably help you to forgive a lot of things. Um, you know what That's I'm saying? That's true. Absolutely. And I think I did hold this place of forgiveness and compassion for my father, even as a teenager when so often we don't have that feeling towards our parents. Um, he was going through a tough time. He was drinking more that, my parents' marriage was really on the rocks by the time I was a teenager. And I was very aware that he'd given up his dream. Uh, my mother talked about it quite often, how sad it was that he didn't take pictures more often and how sad it was that he was too shy and didn't have the courage to exhibit his work. And then he just really hadn't taken it to a professional level. And so... There was always this sadness. It was, I think, in the book I describe it as like there was all this weight and mass almost to the air in our house because of all of these cameras that were stashed away in closets and piles of prints all over that were just totally disorganized that, you know, sometimes would make it into a frame. But these stunningly beautiful images that now are so haunting looking back and, you know, that I think really operate as haunting reminders in the book um, were really just never seen until pretty recently. Well, and you know, all the compulsive purchasing, the it's almost like toys, you know? There's That's a lot what of, it was. a lot of sadness. There is. It was just, he was trying to fill his gaping hole in himself. Right. And so, and the photography was really a way for my father, who was such a complex character, um, to connect with others. It was the way he was able to do that. Sort of a direct connection was harder for him. But if he had the medium of the camera as this conduit between himself and his subject, it was this beautiful connection. That, and then there know, was like intimacy. Exactly. That was how it worked. Mm -hmm. So um, when did your parents divorce? They divorced when I was 18, just as I was heading off to college. Okay. And is it I think it's a tough time no matter how old you are, but certainly as you're sort of setting out to make your way in the world. How did you respond? I think I just, I responded by just kind of shutting the feelings down, which was something we had learned sort of on a family-wide level. Like when bad <laughs> things happen, right. just sweep it under the carpet and just to get on with it. Mm. You had to do that. And so revisiting the family story in the video piece that I describe in the prologue to the book right. where I 
shot each of my family members training the camera only on their mouths and asking questions about the family story so that effectively each family member is, you know, was on a big screen, their mouth telling the family story from their point of view, and six of these screens in this surround sound setting in a dark room in a gallery um, voicing grievances that they never would have voiced in front of each other. So the effect of this was incredibly explosive and really felt like I had opened this Pandora's box that I hadn't realized I was opening. There's something and operatic about it, you know? There was. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very American story, your family story. It is. It's a very American story. And the more I realized, not only with that piece, but then later, you know, I think, that piece was the genesis for the memoir. And later on, realizing that um, the more specific that this story is, you know, really specific about who we were and what we did and what we ate and what it smelled like um, and how it felt to be in a room with these people, you know, talking about the crazy things we were talking about. The more specific I got with that, somehow the more universal it became as an American story. Sure. Well, and the, you know, the other thing that it brings to mind is like, it's very easy when you don't have tons of money to imagine that if you did, that everything would be simpler. And I've had the experience before either watching TV or being with somebody who's extremely wealthy and thinking to myself, like, why, why are you not traveling? Why are you not? Like, like I always say, like my wife and I like to joke up, like we would be really good rich people. We'd be great at it. <laughs> But it's not as simple, it seems like, you know, when you read about the lives. I mean, maybe some people have it figured out, but it's not just like great travel and food and like a rich life and like reading books. And, and right. when I say a rich it's... life, I mean like a, a deeply, <laughs> like, you know, felt uh, experience. Or yes, exactly. I know exactly what you mean. It's not all that, I, I guess, or it's not that easy or it's not as easy as, it, as I'm trying to make it sound. I think the truth is nothing's easy, yeah. no matter where you find yourself. Um but everybody's fighting a hard battle. Everyone's fighting a battle. And it's hard to believe that someone who has everything is fighting often, you know, a deep internal battle of, you know, some kind of wrestling match is going on with even with guilt over the fact that that wealth was inherited. And I feel as if on some level, my father had a tremendous amount of guilt about it and in a way wished and this is coming to me only now, actually, as I say this, perhaps was squandering that fortune unconsciously because he was trying to free himself up yeah, well, so like, that he could realize the dream he truly had, which was to be an artist well, and a you, successful one. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think there's also self-esteem issues, like not being worthy of it. Like I didn't, you know, I didn't earn it. Um, or I've, I've heard stories of compulsive gamblers who blow incredible sums of money, like their entire fortune. Uh, I want to say, was it Norm MacDonald, the comedian, had that thing where he would just go and just like lose all of his money at a casino mm, compulsively. And yes. It, there's a weird emotional thing going on there, you know? Right, not... it's a self-sabotaging thing. It's, you're, it's to free oneself from this burden of, of that wealth that can pin you down. And that's why... The, why is your friend, you know, not traveling the world with all that money? Well, because there's a sense of weight that is pinning him down for some reason. There's yeah. some wrestling match going on. Or he just doesn't like to travel. <laughs> Maybe. Hates airports. <laughs> Hates islands and, you know, beautiful mountain vistas or whatever. But 
uh, you know, it's it's interesting too because you can sometimes think to yourself like, yeah, there are people who live in extreme poverty who are way happier than I am, and there are people who are way richer than I am who are way more miserable than I am. Mm-hmm. You know, like so money. It's a complicated thing. It's not inherently good. It's not inherently bad. It's sort of what you do with it. And and it doesn't buy happiness. It doesn't. But it does make life easier. It can make the conditions for happiness maybe easier to access. I don't know. Like, I don't want to sound... I think that can sound too simplistic, too. Like, it's the kind of way that maybe, you know, you can defend yourself if you don't have money. Well, it doesn't buy happiness. Those people are miserable. You know? Right. <laughs> but the truth is, there's probably some really fucking happy people, like, living in those uh, houses in the hills or whatever. So it's... Probably. I don't know. You know? Like, what's... You've been around, I mean, you know, you had access to a lot of uh, privileged people in your youth. You know, you were around a lot of kids at Taft and in Gross Point. Uh, what was your sense of the, like, the median happiness level? It wasn't very high, I don't think. Most of the kids I knew at Taft were from broken homes. And um, there was a sense of, it seemed among their parents, of, you know, just like incredible discontent and like searching really searching for that love that money couldn't buy right and so you know one partner after another one marriage after another um and to the point where their kids were largely neglected and so they shipped them off to these schools the school would take care of them but at those schools kids are raising themselves there's no no adult supervision other than you know when you get trouble you're hauled into the dean's office and questioned and you well know. The, I mean like the the way I've always thought of it and I I mean I guess I get this in bits and pieces from friends who went to these schools but the kids at the boarding schools are the ones who are really doing the the drugs uh, that's where you get access to a lot of you it's grow, true you grow up fast it's a big introduction and at Taft and this was amazing for me because I'd had so little access to money as a kid and suddenly I was at Taft and the strawberry company was paying larger dividends because we had just purchased the Schlitz and Schaefer breweries and you know we felt like we had money you know to distribute to the family I guess my uncle made that decision so it was I had more access to money then because I would go into the school office fill out a little check for any amount of money that I wanted and they would give me the cash and bill my parents for it. And then they had chartered buses that like would how take much us money. In, how much money were you like taking? I out? would go and take $300 for a weekend in New York. Okay. But it wasn't like insane. You weren't like $50,000. No, it? no, it okay. was nothing like that. But $300 then was, I don't know, 2000 now. I mean, right. It was big money. I would take it into New York for the weekend and the school would charter these buses that would take us in. And we had the run of all of these apartments because all my friends lived in New York and their parents would be at their country houses. And we were just sort of left to our own devices with fake IDs we'd bought on 42nd street and, that sounds and fun. clothes we were buying down in the West village. You know, we get dressed up and go out at night and, and go to nightclubs and that's the way everyone should go. To really? <laughs> I have no regrets. Yeah. This was a fantastic period of my life and certainly a huge education, but the things that we had access to go, I think, in many ways beyond the things that kids who are 14 or 15 today have access to. I mean, there certainly are more parental controls now than there were then. And I think there's a lot more awareness, which is a very good thing. Yeah. Well, and, and when did you start to realize that things were coming apart? 
Like, you know, when did the, when did the sense of like, oh, this is really going south hit you? I think it was when I made that video installation piece in my mid-20s. And I was standing in the center of that room with the other viewers in the gallery listening to my family members describe, you know, essentially why things were falling apart and who was at fault for it and, you know, really pointing the finger. So it was like all these fingers were being pointed across the room. And I had this sense that we're absolutely coming unraveled and if we don't do something very quickly we're really going to lose ourselves at the same time that I was making this piece the Strawberry company was in very troubled times as well and I but I wasn't as focused on that I was really focused on you know how is my family coming apart Um, the business was always something that was sort of not going very well in the background but until things really hit bottom with the business, um, I had a sense that, you know, it's someday probably going to explode in my face and everybody else's. But until it did, you always have this feeling that maybe we can save ourselves. What, and I what think is, I had that same feeling with my family. Yeah. Well, what is what is hitting bottom look like? I mean, because there, there two, like you, you just said it, you know, there's like a duality happening. There's the bottom with the business and with the money stuff. Then there's also the bottom with the family stuff. Right. Like what would you characterize as the bottom? Well, those? I think that family business scene that I include in the book where my brother, Charlie, who the family hasn't seen in many years because he's really been kept out, comes back for a family business meeting and he's deteriorated from um, heavy, heavy drug use to the point where he's nearly unrecognizable. And we're all sitting in the family business meeting being told, you know, save your last few dividends that you're getting. My brothers and I never received dividends, so this was being said to my father and some of my cousins and my uncles who did receive dividends. Um, Save your money. Um, Dividends will stop soon um the business really is gone and not worth anything anymore and you know we've sold it we sold it for very little um most of it went to pay off business loans and what we're distributing now is out of principle and you know you're going to stop seeing these checks fairly shortly in the meantime charlie raises his hand and announces that he has hepatitis c and asks how he can expect to be taken care of by the family, like as his health deteriorates. And uh, my cousin John stood up in front of the room and and told him that he would have to turn to his parents because the company could not be responsible for him. Uh, my father at the time was married to my high school classmate. She put her hand. That's on always his, fun. She put her hand on his knee and sort of gave him, you know, gave him a look of absolute sort of defeat (laughs) like we're not going to help him and so I think this is what hitting bottom feels like sitting in a room where you know all kinds of terrible decisions have come to fruition all at once the truth comes out the truth comes out and it's in person you're not like isolated and you know you're not uh, in in your separate corners you're all sitting there and it's in your face and it's unavoidable um, was there any sense, I mean, maybe not in that moment, but has there been any sense of relief or a sense of release in having it, having that truth come out, having things disintegrate? 
there's been a tremendous release for me. I can't speak for the rest of my family because, of course, this story is told from my point of view. Right. But being sort of released from that burden, that weight of, you know, this legacy that may or may not succeed. Um, the fact that it was really coming apart for about the last 30 years of, um, of my life and being sort of in a front row seat for the defeat of this 150-year success story was very painful. And so when the money was finally gone, there was a sense of immense release for me. And it was actually the end of the story at, which opened the door for me to write the book. I'd known I wanted to write this memoir for years while I wrote fiction and worked on other things. And suddenly the story that I really wanted to write the ending had presented itself, and that's when I knew I could begin. Right. I needed the ending before I could begin. I can relate to that. And so it was my father's death, which happened two months after that final letter went out from the Strobe Brewing Company announcing that the party's over, there will be no more dividends. My father was divorced from his second wife. He was heartbroken. He got an infection in his leg. He was diabetic. It could have been treated. He decided not to treat it. It became systemic. He collapsed on his floor one day and died in the hospital a few days later. And that was the tragic ending to um, this story that had been culminating for so many years. He knew that he could treat it. He knew he could treat it. He chose not to. Was that like a I'm out of here kind of act? I mean, Well, it turned out they did some tests in the hospital and realized he had lung cancer as uh, well. And I think he knew that. I think he could tell from his breathing difficulties He'd been a smoker mm. from for I guess sixty years by that point, and uh, and it caught up with him. And he's just like, okay, I'm not. This is this is not going to end well either way. Exactly, and actually, he probably made the right decision. Yeah, lung cancer is no fun. No. Um. So, you know, when you talk about uh, that much money, especially the the billion dollar offer. And you talk about the release, like the sense of freedom, which makes sense. It makes sense to me that, you know, that burden lifting in a weird way. It's like, it's like we've lost everything. Thank God. Right. <laughs> exactly. Because there was, I knew it wasn't going to come to my siblings anyway, but we nonetheless were sitting there watching this horror film yeah. for years. And, and, and somehow we got like pulled in, like, you're going to sit here and watch this, even though you're not going to benefit from any of it. Talk about an education. It was. So, but do you ever, be honest, do you ever sit around thinking, oh my God, we had the equivalent of $10 billion. <laughs> I could be sitting on, I could be sitting on a fortune right now, not having to ever, th you know, that's, that's, that's big money. It is big money. Do you ever, do you ever I think don't, about it? I don't fantasize about it because I, on a very profound level, reached this realization while my father was still alive that it's actually having to strive for something in life that gives life its meaning. And my father was robbed of that experience. And if he hadn't had the wealth and the, and the business and the pull to be involved in that, he would have been a more self-realized person, much happier. His kids would have been happier and everything would have turned out so much differently. So let's say you have, do you have, you have a, a son? Is that right? I do. Okay. So how do you, how has this affected how you present the issues of money? 
to your own child? Well, I teach him about investing. I became an investor in my early 20s when I... Did you have a trust fund or anything? $200,000 when I turned 21. Okay. And I never... And my mother, who had sort of gathered together, you know, with a little money here, a little money there, these shares that she set aside for the kids, knowing what the writing was on the wall with the Strobe Brewery Company. Um, And she was such a smart investor, created these trusts. We got them when we turned 21. It was really like an amazing thing because then the responsibility was on us because we got it outright. It was money we had outright. We could either spend it, which she instructed us would be the wrong thing to do, or invest it and, you know, learn about the world of investing and finance and, you know, make a go of it and see what we could do. And I I took that to heart and um, never spent a penny, got very involved with the investing, got into technology stocks in the late 90s, um, San Francisco real estate in the late 90s. That's pretty good. Yeah, which and everything worked out really well and taught myself finance and real estate. And so it's an education. It's been an education for my son because I talk with him all the time about these decisions and he's there with me. And and now he sees me, you know, managing apartments that I own and collecting rent checks and how I deal with tenants. So he, I think, has learned a tremendous amount and he has seen, you know, how how it works, how the world of investing works. And and the sooner I can sort of figure out how to get a little money to him so that he can start his own portfolio, uh, I think, you know, we'll just continue his education and, well, and make him sort of someone who can stand on his own two feet. So you think it's a mistake to do a massive wealth transfer to a 21-year-old? And like $200,000 is a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. But that's not like game-changing I'm talking, no, it isn't. I'm talking more like, you know. It can be game-changing over many years yes. if it's invested well. Correct. But, but not um, like like $30 million. Here you go, kid. Like, go enjoy terrible your Terrible idea. Terrible idea. And I think that Bill Gates agrees with me. So, and like, this is the thing, too. Like, I read, I mean, years ago, read a very persuasive article or essay about the uh, inheritance taxes, wealth taxes, uh, where, you know, because there's a big... Um, there's an argument to be made on the right that says it's the death tax. Don't tax inheritance at all so that these massive wealth transfers can be done scot-free, essentially. Mm-hmm. And what the guy was saying is uh, you can't tax a dead person. They're gone. Right. It's And then who you're taxing is the heirs. Who it's didn't, true. Who didn't earn the money. Right. And, you know, and if you don't tax it, then you have these massive transfers and you have the playing field tilted in the direction of the wealthy. You know, you have these people who inherit this money through no merit of their own, just through being born to the right family. Pure mm-hmm. luck. Like, like pure true. luck. It's true. Yes. So, you know, like that that has always been in the back of my mind. Like, I think there should be a heavy tax on inheritance. And I think that, um, you know, it's a, it's a tricky thing. Uh, managing money and, and managing one's spirit in the context of money. And... I think it's a. I think it's difficult to manage one's spirit in the absence of money, like when you're dealing with struggles financially. That's I think true. It, I think it's also difficult to manage one's spirit in the presence of money. It it's is all. Why it's is it all, all a so dance? D- <laughs> I mean, it's something that needs to be negotiated, no matter where you find yourself. It's such, yeah. You like where is it just easy? I think it's just easy. Like we we were saying at the top of the interview, 
it's easy in one of those like nice, like healthy, but not too wealthy Midwestern suburbs in the 1980s. Like the one you grew up in. (laughs) Unless I was just like an idiot and just wasn't paying attention. But I think it was, it was, I I recall it maybe through rose colored glasses is a very blissful innocence. Um, I would love to think that I could provide something similar to my kids, but I'm raising them in Los Angeles. So good luck, you know? Well, this is a pretty idyllic neighborhood in Los Angeles. So, yeah, I mean, you know, and listen, I have friends who were raised here who are wonderful, turned out wonderfully. I think so much of it is, um, you know, how your parents communicate with you, the, like the immediate environment that you're raised in. It's all about the values that are transferred from your parents, no matter what type of environment you're growing up in it or really how much boils money you down have. to that exactly yeah. and you know the example that they're setting what do you what do you think um what do you think is the answer to i mean not not that i'm I mean, this is a lot to put on you in a question <laughs> but do you have thoughts on income inequality on the in, on the issue of inequality in this country like what do we do about that that's a huge problem there is a vast gap that has been growing over the course of our lifetimes between the very well-off and everybody else. Well, it seems as if the very well-off, that top 1%, or even the top tier of the top 1%, seem to get off scot-free. Like, they've got all these loopholes, especially sort of on a corporate level, Apple as a great example, um, that they keep all their money in Ireland. They're or exempt. They're yeah. exempt from the same rules that apply to the rest of us. Right. And that's wrong because ultimately, in some ways, it's like the bottom half of that 1% that has to make up the difference. And that's unfair. So we've got the death tax, but somehow these wealth transfers happen on a corporate level where, you know, they're not touched by any of that. And so our government needs to stop taking the buyouts from, you know, these corporate entities who um, really don't want the rules to apply to them. Um, So I think there's a good deal of corruption going on there. Um, I think keeping the death tax intact, because I think it's a fairly substantial tax at the moment. We should not repeal that. Keep it there. It's nice to be able to transfer a little wealth to your kids so well, they have a down payment for a house. Well, listen, the the way that the law currently exists, I believe like wealth, it's like up to $10 million is tax-free. I think it may be five now. Maybe five. they're thinking of increasing it to 10. I, um, but I know right now it's five. Okay. So yeah, so like that's... That seems reasonable to me. Like I'm, I'm a reasonable man. Like if you spend your whole life working, yeah, let's say you have three kids... And you you have a, at the end of your life five million dollars that you've amassed, and you want to give it to your like that's I don't know I, right. I, I sort of get that. I mean, when you consider like what real estate values are now in major urban centers, right. you divide that three or four ways, and everyone you know can maybe buy a house, pay for half a house, right? So it's not a tremendous amount of wealth, and we all know how hard it is to save up the money for a down payment on a house. So. Yeah. I think that's reasonable. Um, but I, I think it's, you know, the tax revenues that we're losing yeah. from the major tech corporations is something to be revisited. Okay. That's your stump speech right there. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Francis Stroh and I paid for this message. Or I approved this message. Um, 
And so how long did it take you to write this book? About four, four and a half years in total. Was it um, painful at times? Like, were you like, cause it's like, it's really difficult to look at one's own suffering in a meditative way in a book and to like piece through it honestly. You know, I, at least I find that as a writer, like that's not easy work. It can be grueling. It can be. And certainly I had pushed aside some very tough emotions at different junctures along the way. For example, when my brother Charlie died so tragically, um, I had just had a new baby and I really didn't have the bandwidth to take it in. And it was something that had to be taken in over a period of years. And I don't think I really started to do that emotional work until I wrote the book. And of course, I would have to stop at moments and just cry and, you know, take the morning off and, and, and just sort of sit with a feeling sometimes. But ultimately, it was very redemptive and sort of bringing all of that feeling back in and, you know, scraping all that skin off the road and, and reclaiming these relationships and all of the feelings that they stirred in me has been in many ways, a very healing experience. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it sounds a little cliche cause that's, it, that always comes up in the context of memoir, but it's true. It's true. And it's a wonderful side effect of memoir. It isn't the reason that we write, that we write memoir. What it's, is the reason? The reason is to get at a truth that might be true for someone else too. And I think ultimately I was absolutely aware of my audience as I wrote this book, um, it was a form of communication. I wanted to communicate with my audience. I wanted, I wanted to create a dialogue. I wanted to open up the conversation about these events that take place behind so many households, behind the doors, so many closed doors and so many communities and really just get really honest about what the, what this suburban, privileged world is about yeah. and you know the secrets that we keep the secrets that we're forbidden to share and share them in a compassionate heartfelt way honest way in an honest way in a very candid way not assigning any blame but really just saying laying it out here it is this is what it was and since i've done that since the book has been published so many people that I grew up with in Growth Point have written me long letters mm. telling me, like, I told my story, but I also told their story. I was going to say, because, like, um, I'm sure people who grew up in some version of unhappy privilege would relate to it. Have you heard from anybody who didn't, who somehow found a line to it as well? Many, many people. I've. It's funny because I get all kinds of... Yeah, my my email is available on my website. So I hear from quite a few people that I don't know who are from all kinds of areas in the country, but a lot of them, um, have grown up in the Detroit area and, um, and relate to the story coming from all kinds of, um, backgrounds. Uh, I think it's the idea of Stroh's beer that they're familiar with that first attracts them to the book, but then, you know, it's this deeply personal story that resonates no matter um, what level of privilege they've experienced. Okay. So, Riches um, to rags. Exactly. You know, a lot of people have been through some version of that. You know, That's it's all, true. It's, it's all in a, it's in a continuum. You know, it can happen at any, at any spot along the way. 
But, yeah, uh, it's absolutely. I mean, no matter what size the inheritance is that you think might be coming down the pike, if that goes up in smoke, it I mean, it, it, it impacts people. Well, and how do you lose? This is a question I think that people without great wealth can uh, find themselves asking. You had a billion dollars on the table. The family did. Turned it down. But then had like, you know, a lot of money. How along the way was someone not saying, you know, we're going to sock this much away in a very safe growth fund every week? That's every a great month. question. How do you lose it? There was, this is how it happened with us. Um, we were, someone who worked for us who was not a family member suggested we start this fund called the Century Fund so that, you know, by the time the company was gone, there would be this fund that would continue to pay dividends. And the Century Fund was started, and they started socking the money away. But ultimately, my uncle wanted to funnel that money into a biotechnology company that um, he had started with Stroh Companies Funds. And he was convinced this company was going to be successful. And so I think at one point, he must have just shut down the Century Fund and taken the money out and put it into the biotechnology because... No one ever talked about the Century Fund again. It just disappeared. The Century Fund was diversified. The biotechnology company was all eggs in one basket, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> and so about $100 million went into the biotechnology company. Oh. And we did make it into phase three trials, which is making it quite far. Sure. Um, it got dragged out for many, many years. And then finally the FDA shut us down. It didn't work. It was, was a that. drug to treat septic shock. It's funny, too, because you think about it, like all things, not to get too uh, precious about it, but all things in our experience, like all phenomena um, are impermanent. You know, human beings born, die, trees, you know, grow, die, everything. Everything. Companies. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Companies. And we were around for five generations. That's actually a long time to hold on to your money. Yeah. So it's like 150 150 years Mm -hmm. uh, this company thrived and then it... You know, as things do in nature, it reached its end. It cycled out. It's it, uh, The conditions were no longer right for it to manifest. That's exactly right. And back to your earlier question about, you know, do I ever sort of seethe silently about the loss of this billion-dollar fortune back in the 80s that could be so much more now? I really don't because I remind myself that that was not the tr- – the prudent investing was not the trend on the board or within the family – back in the 80s. So even if they had taken the offer, it would have gone into the biotechnology company or more Detroit real estate. and So many cowboy outfits and cameras. Right. And <laughs> weapons, <laughs> guitars. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you'd own a museum, though, of guitars and weapons or whatever. But um, it's a hell of a story. And, uh, you know, congrats to you on writing it and for uh, taking the time, you know, to, like, tell that truth like and to work through it i know how much work that takes and uh you know i hope you imagine you feel proud of it i do it's and it's just it's a it's so rewarding to have worked through all of that stuff and come out on the other side of it feeling very at peace about it i feel as if you know these loose threads of my life have all been sewn together and in you know sort of this complex way in the story and so the complexity isn't sort of this burden that I carry around. It's out there now. It's it's this thing that it's this thing in the world. It's a story in the world that can be shared. 
and um, and there's something very gratifying about that. And what about your family, the family members? Like, uh, have they read it? How's the reaction been? Is there any bad blood? Um, the reactions are slowly trickling in. So the book's <laughs> only been out for three weeks. You're I getting think. text messages right now. Angry, <laughs> disgruntled text messages. Um, so my mother has been a huge support from the very beginning, a huge champion of the book. And um, it's a great title, by the way. It's the perfect, you know, how like that title had to have come to you at some point. You were like, yes, <laughs> that's right. You know, you just sort of, I just like nailed it. There's this no, great. there's no other title for this book. No, there isn't. It's, it's perfect on so many levels. Um, and so I, I think that I'm just still waiting. I've, I've heard, I've gotten some very supportive emails from some cousins. One who's a writer, loved the book, was very affected by it. Um, I've got a couple of other relatives who plant all kinds of stories about me on page six of the New York Post, and it's becoming sort of a habit for them. And so the only way we communicate is through Richard Johnson of on page six. Really? Yes. It's very odd. That's they strange. don't come to me sort of, and they you know make these false allegations that then Richard Johnson calls me to ask me about, and I respond, and there's this ongoing dialogue on page six. Interesting. Very, very bizarre. Did anybody in the family walk with more money than other people in the family? Like, did anyone squirrel away a nut that was bigger than the others? Well, certainly my Uncle Peter, who was the CEO, um, probably did that. And I think individual family members, some were better about investing than others were. Yeah. So there's no... People ask me, you know does your family still have money or do they not? And my answer always is I can't speak to, you know, for the whole family because every branch of the family is different. Everyone, you know, had a different arrangement in terms of dividend structure and saving. So every, everyone sort of made different decisions. Uh And I think some still have money and some don't. Do you guys, you see them at all? I do see some cousins sometimes. Um, nobody lives in California, so when I do, it's usually when I'm visiting the East Coast or Detroit. Right. And how often do you go back? Like, do you get back to Detroit regularly? I or? try to. And when I go back now, I stay downtown. I love you know the sense of explosiveness and what's and happening burgeoning in potential in Detroit. It's like a renewal. Everything's happening. I mean, first the artists moved in and colonized and took all the risk and now the entrepreneurs are following and amazon's moving in and everyone's buying up real estate and turning it into this vibrant urban center it's just such an amazing turnaround i i don't think any other american city has experienced anything close so do you have any desire to go back there are you 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 happy when i'm back there i often feel i I would like to spend more time here. And I never have felt that before. I've always felt I want to spend as little time here as possible. (laughs) Now it's just, it's the place to be. It really is. It's, you know, San Francisco is already sort of solidified in its identity, New York, even Brooklyn, but Detroit is reinventing itself happening. It's becoming, it's the wild West. Anything can happen there. And you feel that when you're there and you want to be a part of it. Mm, that's exciting. It is. I mean, and it's like, it's also sort of depressing because it's like, God, is it, is that what it really takes to get that sort of environment created? Like you basically have to decimate like a great American city and let it rise from the ashes. Maybe that's the way of nature. Uh, Maybe it is. It's sort of like, you know, even on a microcosmic level, you know, 
tearing down the houses and starting vegetable gardens in Detroit because they didn't have any chain grocery stores because of the crime. They'd all moved out. Hmm. So there's this very grassroots feeling on multiple levels in Detroit. You know, these small businesses are coming in. The rent is still very cheap. Well, the guy it's who a great runs, place to be. The guy who founded Quicken Loans, didn't he do something there? Dan Gilbert's done a tremendous amount yeah. to bring the city back to life. Bought up a lot of the buildings downtown, turned them into offices, brought in you know, all kinds of executives to fill that office space and Talk has really re- sort of brought the brain power back to Detroit. Well, I was, and I was going to say too, like from a real, if you're a real estate investor, you could, I mean, at least like in the last decade or whatever, there were times when you could get a house for a song. They were giving away houses in That's Detroit. That's true. <laughs> and you used to get a house for 5,000. Now, you know, it's up to 10. Yeah. So people are doubling their money in a very short time and some people are buying houses for you know hundreds of thousands downtown okay so what's the if i'm if i'm a real estate investor what's the best neighborhood to buy a ten thousand dollar house in (laughs) um a ten thousand dollar house um i would say this area surrounding indian village like some of the neighborhoods that are still blighted around indian village would be a good bet because that you know those are some beautiful areas, beautiful architecture, and Indian Village has popped lately, and it's everything's just you know remodeled and looking great. Another area, especially for commercial investing, that I think is going to pop very soon is along the riverfront. Um, beautiful views across the river to Canada. A lot of weed-filled. The lots. option to escape if necessary. That's right. <laughs> Good water supply. The shit hits um, the fan. You can swim to Canada. It's beautiful. You can, exactly. Um, and beautiful pre-war abandoned warehouses all along the river. And there's a stunning riverfront park that's maintained by the Ch- Detroit Conservancy that was put in about 15 years ago. Still looks brand new and was ahead of its time because the river has not come back yet. But this beautiful riverfront park and walkway is there. Well, you know, anytime there's water. Waterfront real estate tends, right. tends to come back. It does, more even quickly. though it's coming back slowly, more slowly in Detroit because of the downtown area that came back first, uh-huh. where Dan Gilbert invested. But it's going to move to the riverfront. When Francis, very soon. when Francis Stroh <laughs> steps into town, starts buying warehouse space. That's right. <laughs> I would love it if I could do that. <laughs> well, listen. Uh, congrats once again. Thank you for coming over here uh, a bit earlier than expected, and um, I wish you well on the rest of your tour and with whatever comes next. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, guys. Frances Stroh. There she is. Her memoir is called Beer Money. It's available now from Harper. You can find Frances online at francisstroh.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle is at Frances Stroh, and you can also track her down on Facebook. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Hey, remember that uh, this podcast has its own official app. The Other People with Brad Listy app is free. It's available wherever you get your apps. It's the best way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. You get the most recent 50 episodes for free. So you, you get the app. The app is free. It's on your device. You open the app up. The most recent 50 episodes are sitting there waiting for you. Free. And then if you want to get at the archives, more than 400 episodes available at your fingertips anywhere you go, you just sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It costs 75 cents a month. It gets you access to everything, every single episode. 
including my conversations with authors like Cheryl Strayed, Sheila Hetty, Roxane Gay, George Saunders, Jonathan Lethem, Tom Parada, Edwidge Dantica, Amy Bender, Susan Orlean, David Shields, Maggie Nelson, who else? Ben Marcus. 75 cents a month gets you access to everything. That's a lot of entertainment. It's a lot of interviews. It's a lot of uh, programming. It's a good thing to do. Great way to support the show. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. We're all going to have our own condos in Colorado, like each family. <laughs> this is how we've got to do it. Everyone gets their own place to retreat to. Like we thought about getting like one big place, but that never works. You're on top of one another. Can't stand each other. So everybody gets their own unit in the same complex. Things go south, we can just retreat to our quarters. Is that excessive? Maybe. But again, I was planning it. I was anticipating. Trying to keep the peace. Please remember that Dylan Thomas called Wordsworth, quote, a tea time bore. And that Joseph Conrad once referred to the work of D.H. Lawrence as, quote, nothing but obscenities and filth. I believe that's it. I think that's uh, the end of the road right there. I've said everything I needed to say. I'm going to go on this trip. The podcast will, it should continue. At this point, the plan is for it to continue because you guys know me. I don't take time off. I deliver programming. It's my job. Made a commitment to my audience. It's very warm. (laughs) It's an enveloping heat. There seems to be a little bit of humidity here in the desert today. I haven't seen any wasps. Did I tell you I got bit by a spider on my ankle? Like, it swelled up. There was a, a... It looked like a bruise. Like, it was bad. I don't know what it was. I think I might have already told you that. I'm looking forward to uh, nature. Hopefully a little bit of serenity. I could use it. A little breathing room. Get out of the city. Connect with my family. Have some quality family time. Get away from the microphone. I need to get away from the microphone, you guys. It's not healthy to be podcasting this much in these kinds of temperatures. At this point, I'm just talking to try to fill out the episode and uh, make it to the end of the song. You probably detect that. Here we go. All right, that's it. It's over. You made it. (laughs) 